It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast. City to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Monday morning. Welcome on in to the Ryan Hickey Show, or else, but the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We are live here for the next two hours as we roll along until 11 a.m. Eastern. Hitting on what is another jam-packed weekend of sports, a tremendous, and I mean tremendous, Final four, we had a good game between Kansas and Villanova. Villanova made it closer towards the end, gave you a reason to watch. And then you had the big game, North Carolina Duke, not only live up to the hype, but be an all-time classic with what it means in history, what kind of the game it was going back and forth down to the wire. It was absolutely tremendous. So, of course... We got a lot of reaction from that game. We'll get you set for tonight's national title game between Kansas and North Carolina. We have a few other NBA points. And of course, we also got a hit on or a few other NFL points. And I do want to touch on what is a very hot and tight race in the NBA MVP discussion. So we got a lot to talk about here just the next two hours. So let's dive in. We are coming to you live from, of course, the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Whether it's great pizza, hot heroes end phenomenal dinners. Make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. Let's start with the Final Four. Let's start with history. Duke taking down North Carolina. I think North Carolina, in beating Duke in the Final Four, that is a bigger game. That is a bigger win for the Tar Heels than even if they win tonight. Even if they win the national championship, I still think their win over Duke on Saturday night is bigger, is more important, and will be remembered 50 years from now, 100 years from now. It will be remembered more in history what happened Saturday than even what happens tonight. Because you look at that storied and classic rivalry, one of the best rivalries in all sports. These two hated rivals, so close to each other, obviously so much history. And in this game in the Final Four, if you're North Carolina... You beat Coach K in his final game in history. Final game coaching. You beat him. You send him home. This is now twice you are sending Coach K off in misery. And those two factors, kind of finally beating your hated rival, not only beating him, but beating him in the NCAA tournament for the first time in rivalry history, sending Coach K off without, you know, a fairy tale ending. Setting them off in misery in the final four. Carolina now two times in a row getting Coach K at the two most important moments of his farewell tour, I think will be remembered and is more important in that rivalry for Carolina fans than even if they win the national title uh, later tonight. Because if you really think about it, right, we all have teams we hate, whether it's in baseball, whether it's in college basketball, college football, the NFL. Every single team we root for, there's always one rival. There's always one team, maybe even we as fans, just disdain, just completely hate. For me, you know, in football, being a Penn State fan, it's Michigan. God, do I hate Michigan. 
In baseball, I'm a huge Mets fan. I hate the Phillies. I just despise the Phillies. That is one team that the Mets cannot beat up enough. So there's always that one team that you just hate, where anytime your team plays them, the game means a little more. It's a little bigger. The stakes are a little higher in those games. And for now, if you are a Carolina fan, when you and your team were just able to accomplish on Saturday night, I think is fan heaven. Fan heaven. Because what Carolina gained on Saturday was the ultimate bragging rights for the rest of time. For the rest of time, Carolina now will always kind of have the trump card. Carolina will always have, yeah, but. Carolina will always have a one-up on Duke. Forget about most wins. Forget about national titles. Forget about even the rivalry itself. North Carolina now will always, no matter what Duke fans want to say, no matter what Duke fans want to you know, do, no matter what Duke does on the basketball court going forward, Carolina will always have the fact now that they beat Coach K in his final game in Camp Rendor, and they sent Coach K home packing. They prevented the fairy tale ending from happening. They ruined what was shaping up to be a storybook ending for Coach K. And Carolina ended the career of Coach K. And so with that rivalry, that heated rivalry going back and forth, right? Fans talking a, a lot of junk to each other. What can Duke fans honestly say? Sitting here, what can they say to Carolina fans where Carolina won't be able to dunk on them by saying, well, we beat Coach K not once but twice, sent him home. Remember your two lowest moments of Coach K's final season or what? Losing at home in his final game with all the pomp and circumstance, all the attention surrounding it, and then, oh yeah, beating him in the tournament, Meeting him in the Final Four in the first time these two rivals met up in the tournament in history and sent Coach K home packing for the final time of his career. What more could Duke fans say to kind of counteract that, to fight back? There's nothing. The two worst moments of Duke's season came at the hands of Carolina. And when you look back at Coach K's career, when you look back at Coach K's this season especially, you are always going to be remembering how Carolina ruined it, not once, but twice. That is what, I don't know about you, that is what every fan lives and dies for. I would kill to be able to have those bragging rights over one of the teams that I hate and one of the teams that is rivals to mine. Because now you always, in any argument, always have the upper hand. Always. Now you look at it, right? Carolina themselves has a, a long history of success. Different coaches, right? Roy Williams and uh, Dean Smith. Right? They have obviously six national titles. They have Carolina has a lot of history with more than just one coach. Where you look at Duke, Coach K is Duke. Coach K built up that program, made Duke as relevant as it is. Obviously, you know, won all five national titles that are at the university. So for, uh, for Duke, they are Coach K. Coach K is Duke. Duke is Coach K. So for your hated rival to send the legend of your university, if you are Duke, off in misery twice, there is nothing more that Duke can do or say that trumps that. And that is why this win is so important. Not only is what every fan dreams of and having those ultimate bragging rights, again, it is history. 
I think it's even bigger than winning a national title tonight. Like, we just kind of hit it on before, but let's dive into it a little bit more. You look at Carolina's basketball history. They are one of the most successful programs, obviously, in all of college basketball. So winning a national title tonight, look, I'm not trying to tell you it doesn't mean anything. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. Winning a national title is important. I'm not telling you that Caroline doesn't care or Hubert Davis doesn't care about it. It is still important. You obviously would love to finish the job. And if you were Carolina, basically put a bow on your own fairy tale season. And what was supposed to be Coach K's fairy tale ending, now you can get your own fairy tale and like movie ending by finishing the job and winning the national title tonight. It's the, it's the icing on top of the cake. But this national title, in terms of historical perspective, doesn't really change much. It doesn't change the trajectory of Carolina. doesn't put this school on the map. Because guess what? They're already there. Tar Heels have six national titles. Third most in college basketball history, only behind UCLA and Kentucky. This is their 21st Final Four appearance, tops in all of college basketball. So again, they are a storied program. They've had consistent success throughout their entire uh, century plus of existence. So again, a national title is important, but it's not like this is a school like St. Peter's, for example, who, if they won a national title, would by far be the biggest accomplishment in all of their program history, right? Making the Elite Eight was by far the biggest accomplishment in St. Peter's history. So winning a national title, if you're the Peacocks, let's say, or Clemson basketball, let's say, without a storied history of success, would be massive. Would be the event looked upon more than anything else, right? There's no game, whether it's St. Peter's, whether it's Clemson, whether it's any other college basketball program that doesn't have a lot of success like Carolina does, historically, Winning the national title would by far be the game, be the moment that everyone looks back on the most and be the, the high point, right, of your university, of your basketball program, and also be the game that kind of sets the wheels in motion going forward for your program to have uh, consistent success. When you look at Carolina, I would argue, again, this win on Saturday would be even more important than a national title win. Even if Carolina wins the title tonight, I think the one game we would look back on the most is the Final Four Duke game. It's kind of like, you know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like 1980 Team USA. Because if you remember that, you know, Miracle Run, or if you watch Miracle, the game that's talked about the most, the game everyone looks back on the most, is not the gold medal game against Finland. No, 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 no. It is the uh, semifinal game against the Soviet Union, finally getting over the hump and beating the juggernaut that was the Soviets that everyone looks back on. That movie was centered around the Soviet semifinal game. And then at the end, the last minute of the movie is a footnote. Oh yeah, by the way, a few days later, they won the gold medal. They finished the job. The game everyone though on that 1980 U.S. hockey team that miraculously won the gold medal, the game everyone points to and looks at is the Soviet Union semifinal game, which again, didn't get them a medal. All it did was finally beat Goliath. That's what I think would happen here. If Carolina wins tonight, they beat Kansas and win their seventh national title, it's an insanely impressive accomplishment, especially considering halfway through the year, Carolina was a bubble team. So it's an impressive run. Hubert Davis in his first season, no one expected the success. And again, entering March, no one thought this was even a reality. So it's impressive. I'm not trying to tell you it means nothing. It is very important. 
But I think the game we would look back on the most, the game that would be talked about the most, and if you're a Carolina fan, the, the, the game that would, be, that would be most memorable is not the national title game, but instead beating Duke. With the storied and bitter rivalry that these two have, with Coach K, I don't say being a thorn in the, in the side of Carolina, but obviously always being there and being the one guy you always want to beat on a yearly basis. For you being Carolina now, not only preventing yourself from, or preventing Duke from having that historical storybook ending, you also all, you know, ended at the hands of yourself in sending Coach K home. That to me is the game we would all look back on and say, wow, what a game, what an accomplishment. More than even beating Kansas. That's right for me. I think this win on Saturday is even more important than winning the national title itself. Like if you ask UNC fans right now, Hey, would you sign up, let's say on Friday afternoon, before the game against Duke happened, if you said, hey, you gotta, you know, you guys are playing Duke right now, I can guarantee you, you beat Duke, but it also means you lose against Kansas in the national title game, would you sign for it? I bet you most Carolina fans would sign on the dotted line right there, I'm in. I will lose the national title game if it means beating Coach K and sending him home. I guarantee you most, if not all Carolina fans are signing up for that right now. That is not only how important that rivalry is, but how important having the bragging rights are. And that is what Carolina has. The ultimate trump card. The ultimate comeback in anything, anytime Duke wants to talk trash. Carolina fans could just say, remember the Final Four. Remember Cameron Indoor. Remember Coach K's last game at home. Remember what happened in the Final Four as, as Duke is making that storybook run where I'll be honest... I sat here. I sat here on Thursday, and said I thought it was destiny that Duke was at least going to beat Carolina. It was setting up perfectly to where Coach K was going to get his revenge, and they were going to beat Carolina to get to the national title game. I thought it was going to work out perfectly, and it was kind of setting itself up for a Hollywood ending, if you will. But Carolina said not so fast. That is why this game, I think, is even more important for Carolina than it is tonight. So I'm curious your thoughts here. We have a national title game tonight, right? The reason why you watch, the reason why teams play is to win a championship. Everyone, every single year, the goal is, hey, let's win a championship. Well, Carolina is on the cusp of that. But is it safe to say their win over Duke is even more important than winning a national title? Love to get your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, you can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. Or... You can tweet us at WWSRN underscore radio. Check us out on YouTube as well, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So we get your thoughts here. And when we return, speaking of the national title game, who's winning? Who do you got winning tonight? Is it Kansas or is it North Carolina? We'll give you my thoughts when we return here on the Ronnie K Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show, where us, but the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Still trying to react and still trying to relive what, for me, is sports fan heaven. And that is what Carolina was able to accomplish on Saturday night in beating their hated, their bitter rival in Duke, but not only beat them in the Final Four, 
not only beat them in the first time these two teams ever have met in their storied rivalries history in the NCAA tournament, they also do so in beating Coach K and sending him home for the first time, or for the first time, or I should say for the last time of his career. So you look at it, Carolina, what they were able to accomplish, you beat your bitter rival. Not only do you beat your bitter rival, you beat them in the tournament, so you end their season, you end Coach K's career, and then you ruin his two biggest moments of his final farewell tour. You beat him in the final home game, and now you beat him in the NCAA tournament. There is nothing you could ask for more than having the ultimate bragging rights over your rival. Usually, usually, those bragging rights change depending on year to year how the results go, right? If you have just a one-sided rivalry, let's say Ohio State Michigan, where Ohio State's won, it was like 15 of the last 16 um, matchups against Michigan, all your bragging rights for Ohio State are just, again, the results-based. So if Michigan wins the next 14 out of the 15, then Michigan's the one who has the bragging rights there and talking about how Ohio State stinks. But if you're Carolina, no matter what happens, Duke could beat you 20 times in a row. It won't matter because you still have that ultimate moment, the one that pains Duke fans the most for how bad they wanted it, how bad they wanted Coach K to go out on a fairy tale ending and win his sixth national title and do so in his final season. You will always have that moment. It will never be taken away from you in beating Coach K at Cameron and beating Coach K in the Final Four. It is by far the ultimate bragging rights for a sports fan that will never go away. It will never go away. This is an extremely rare opportunity, and Carolina has it, and I could not be more jealous. Couldn't be more jealous of getting the ultimate bragging rights over your hated rival. And for me, looking at that game juxtaposed to tonight's game, where Carolina is going for their seventh national title, I think that Saturday night is even more important or was more important than tonight. Because win or lose, if you're Carolina, you will still have that moment over Duke. And even if you win tonight, I think the game you're going to look back on and remember more fondly, the game that will be talked about even more, isn't tonight's national title game against Kansas. I think it's Saturday's game against Duke. That is the game everyone's going to be talking about, just like Team USA. When they beat the Soviet Union back in 1980 to just get to the gold medal game, no one really talks about the gold medal game nearly as much as the semifinal game against Soviets. That's what I think is going to happen here if, if uh, UNC wins the national title. It's going to be weird, and it's going to be one of the extremely rare moments in sports where a national title kind of takes a backseat and is a footnote. But that's what I think is happening here. That is what is happening here. I mean, you're Caroline. Impressive victory. And an extremely important one in terms of getting those bragging rights down. So love to hear your thoughts. Do you agree? Was Saturday's win even more important for Carolina than tonight? Love to get your thoughts. Twitter again, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Right Network is where you can find the show. Like us and then comment on the live stream, which is right below uh, on our show page. So speaking of the national title games tonight, we got to talk about who we got. I think there's two, or I'm using picking two reasons why I think Kansas will be lifting up the trophy tonight. I think they are winning the national title because of their three-point shooting and because of the emotional exhaustion on the Tar Heels. Let's start with on the court, at least in terms of Kansas's skill. Because what did we say last week? Sitting here a week ago, coming off of Kansas's very impressive lead eight win over Miami, what did we say? If Kansas can consistently shoot the three ball, 
like they did in the second half against Miami, no one has beaten them. No one's beaten them. And guess what? They carried that second half performance against Miami and they took it into the final four against Villanova. They shot the lights out, especially from three, especially in the first half. And they showed you. This team's hitting shots on the outside. We know how dangerous they are from the inside. There's no defense. Whether it was Duke, whether it was Carolina, whether it's Nova, there is no defense remaining that could slow down the Jayhawks. They brought it from the Elite Eight to the Final Four. I think they'll carry it into tonight's game as well. And that's why one of the reasons why I think they're winning. Because you look at what Kansas did, especially against a very good defensive team in Villanova on Saturday. When they are hitting the threes, they are unguardable. Like, sure, obviously it helps when you're white hot from three. Kansas as a team went 13 to 24. Is that sustainable? No. I, I realize, trust me. That going shooting over 50% from three, especially for a college team, is not something you can pencil on a nightly basis. They were hot. Ochai Abaji starting six for six from three again. It's probably not going to happen again. But you even look at what hitting a few threes does. In that Miami second half, Kansas only hit five threes. I say only because they hit 13 against Nova. But they don't have to be, you know, delirious from three in order to have real success. They only had five threes against Miami the whole game, and they hit all five in the second half. But just those threes, just the threat of shooting and making the three spreads defenses out to where you can't guard both you know, Kansas on top at the three-point line and down low in the paint. It's kind of uh, either or. You can either try to suffocate the paint and hope they miss from three, or you can guard the three-point line and just hope that you can make your threes and threes are greater than two, and you have Kansas only, only live down low you try to beat him from the three-point line. But one of the things that makes Kansas so unguardable is not just the fact that they were 13 of 24 from three, but it's that so many different shooters on the floor can hit the long ball. They had, on Saturday, Kansas had five different players hit a three. And that's important because when you have so many different threats, again, it helps spread the defense out. We talked about Ochai Abaji. Started six for six. He finished six for seven. So obviously he was unconscious from three. But Kansas has showed you, whether it's Christian Brown, whether it's Remy Martin, they have all different players who can shoot and hit from deep, which only spreads the defense out. And when they are spreading the defense out, as you know, that opens up their down low game, their paint game, their post game, and it makes them unguardable. Because that is really where Kansas lives. They live in the paint. They are a team that loves to run, loves to get out quick, and they make a lot of their shots, a lot of their buckets, from within, let's say, 6 to 10 feet. They live down low. They live in the paint. And now when you have defenses that just can't pack the middle, when they can't prevent Kansas from driving down the lane because you have so many guys spread out to try to stop the three, again, I don't get, I don't see how Carolina is able to slow down this Kansas offense. They're too high-powered. Because you look at what happened for at least in the Nova game, Early on, the three ball was working for Kansas, right? They were hitting threes, hitting threes, hitting threes. That, of course, obviously spreads the Nova defense out. Now they're forced to guard the three-point line better than ever. And the second half, we saw, you know, Kansas down low put the game away with their, uh, with their uh, pinking. David McCormick was unstoppable, especially in the first half. Scored 25 points for career high, 10 of 12 from the field. So you saw the size really help out um, Kansas as well because not only are they a team that does live in the paint, does have a lot of guys that can score down low, but they have the size 
to be able to get rebounds, get second and third opportunities to where, again, when you are spread out, you can't be crashing the glass that makes it harder for you to have three, four guys down that get a defensive rebound if you are if you are Nova like we saw on Saturday or if you are UNC tonight. And we saw Kansas plenty of times get second and third opportunities on offense because they were fighting for the rebounds. Because they had guys going down low, working real hard. But also, too, because Nova had guys on the wing and on the perimeter, it makes it tougher to, to pack the paint, not only to stop driving uh, the drives from Kansas, but to grab the rebounds. But you look at Kansas. They outscored Nova 32-16 in the paint. So again, well, they were hot from three, and they were making the deep ball. They are truly a team that gets a lot of their points and gets a lot of their scoring from the free throw line down. They get to the line. They score low again. McCormick was just a, a man possessed, going 10 of 12 from the field, scoring a career of 25 points. His ability really kind of kiboshed Villanova's comeback. Because in the second half, you saw Nova starting to make their shots, especially make their threes. But you saw McCormick go, you know, Kans went back to him late. And his ability down low to grab a few rebounds, get a few hook shots to drop, finished the job for Kansas. So when you look at a team that is able to shoot from three, open up that threat, while also being a menace down low, I don't see how Carolina will be able to slow down this Jayhawk offense. I think they'll be able to still, you know, maybe not go 13 to 24 again, but still be good enough, still be potent enough to make their shots deep just to keep the threat alive and open up the driving lanes, open up the paint for uh, for McCormick to get one-on-one opportunities down low, open up the ability for Christian Brown or, or Abaji to drive in the lane and get some, you know, get some layups. This team is hitting from deep and also scoring down low. They, to me, are the most unguardable team in college basketball. We've seen that play out in front of our eyes. We saw it against Miami in the second half. We saw it, frankly, for most of, if not the entire game, against Villanova. I don't think Carolina will be able to slow this team down defensively. That is a big reason why I think Kansas is going to win. The other reason why I'm picking the Jayhawks is the emotional exhaustion UNC is facing. We just talked about in the open how big, how huge, how important that win over Duke was. But think about even just the lead up to the game. We had a full week talking about how this, you know, this is in this storied rivalries history, first time they're meeting ever in the NCAA tournament. Coach K's final run, you know, the, the last dance, if you will, for Coach K. Everything that came with that moment. Everything, all the pressure that was put on not only Duke players, but Carolina players. Again, this is a rivalry. I know we always talked about it and looked at it from the lens of Coach K. And looking at it from the Duke players of them trying to avenge their loss to Carolina and end Coach K's career with a championship. That is really hard to do. That's a lot of pressure on these kids in order to succeed. So we always looked at the pressure. We always talked about who has more to gain and more to lose. Well, for the most part, we looked at it from Duke's perspective, and I think it's rightfully so. But we can't forget, again, this is a this is a, a bitter rivalry where even for UNC, even though, sure, you, you lose to Coach K, fine, it's a storybook ending, like it's, it's not the end of the world. There's still pressure on you to win because that is your rival. Again, you don't want to see your bitter rival have success. You don't want to beat him in Cameron Indoor, but then also be a footnote in history uh, of Coach K, you know, on his way to his sixth national title. We'll still talk about that win over North Carolina and Duke getting their revenge. Avenge that loss to Cameron Indoor a few weeks later. So there was still a lot of pressure on Carolina to still uh, to win that game on Saturday. So now when you accomplish it, when you're able to climb the mountain again 
beat Duke for the second time in a month, end Coach K's career, have that euphoria of a high of taking down your bitter rival, I think it makes it harder for a team to get back up again, get emotionally invested, lock in for a national title game just two days later. I mean, let's not forget, it's a very quick turnaround here. There is not a lot of time to decompress, put that win behind you, and refocus for Kansas. Like, Kansas, for the most part, had a pretty easy win against Villanova, right? It helped that didn't, Villanova didn't have one of their best players in Justin Moore, but Kansas got out to a hot start. Villanova did, you know, make a run late to get it to single digits, but Kansas pulled away and, you know, won convincingly in the end. So they had a little worry, but for the most part, it was, a, it was an easy win going forward. So they were able to already put that game behind them and lock in. Again, when you're Carolina, especially playing the second game, so you're celebrating late at night, you're not going out to the bars or anything. It's, I mean, hey, who knows? It is, it is New Orleans after all. Maybe you are. But you have that euphoria on Saturday night. You wake up Sunday, it's, you're still buzzing. Everyone's still buzzing about you know, Coach K's career ending and doing it at the hands of yourself. But you got to go to practice. you got to reinvest to try to take on a Kansas team that's going to pose a big challenge. For 18 and 22-year-old kids, I mean, we're all in college. It is sometimes really hard to focus, even though it seems obvious. It's the national title game. Of course, they'll be locked up. Of course, they'll be ready to go. When you have such an important and emotionally exhausting game as you did against Duke, where the game was back and forth, the game was tight. The biggest lead in the game was seven points. So it was going back and forth. There was numerous lead changes, a ton of ties. It was a tremendous basketball game. But that takes a toll on you emotionally, mentally, where you're exhausted. And now, again, just two days later, but really, you know, not even two days later, with the Saturday night, you wake up Sunday, Sunday morning, you're at practice, but then, you know, Monday's here. It's The game's here already. We're less than 12 hours away. I think it's... A, a lot to ask for a team to lock in mentally that quickly and be able to be ready to play in a national title game. I mean, we saw it last year. Last year is a great example of it. Gonzaga, if you remember their Final Four game, right? They, they played UCLA. They went to overtime. Jalen Suggs hits that just, you know, uh, half-court buzzer beater to win the game and send Gonzaga to the national title game. Win it overtime, buzzer beater. It was euphoria. It was insanity. That was a great shot. We were talking about it all the next day. We were going through the mechanics of the shot, breaking it down. But then what happened? Gonzaga got blown out by Baylor. They got stomped. Now, Baylor, no, you know, they were a great team, so not taking anything away from them. But Gonzaga was not that bad, where they were 20 points worse than Baylor. And that game was really never close. It was a blowout from the start. And I think a large reason for it was you have that such uh, of a high on Saturday night, winning on a buzzer beater, kind of winning in an emotionally exhausting back and forth game where it is tough to lock in. I think that is what we're going to see from Carolina. It is tough to get refocused after winning what I think, again, is going to be a game that's going to be remembered more in history than even the national title game in beating Duke and sending Coach K home. It is really tough to ask 18 and 22-year-old kids to lock in that fast and refocus. So I don't think Carolina emotionally is going to be up for this game. I don't think they'll be ready to play right away. And I think that's going to set up Kansas to get out to a hot early start. I think the emotions will cause just a natural letdown. Even if you think about, we're not, you know, we're not going to let this be a, lot, uh, a letdown. We're going to think about trying to be as focused as we can. It's human nature. It's college kids. 
These letdowns are going to happen. And I think it's going to be a reason why Kansas is going to win tonight. So the three-point shooting, I think, makes Kansas the most unguardable team in college basketball. And I think the emotional investment, the emotional letdown here is going to be something to watch. Well, I do think it's going to impact Carolina in a negative way. It's going to be tough to refocus, tough to kind of get back and be ready to play. I think those two factors are going to be the two reasons why Kansas wins the national title tonight. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Who do you got? Do you have Kansas winning the national championship or are you going with Carolina? Love to hear your thoughts. Tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. You can write on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, or on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, I got a little NFL here. Because for the most part, free agency is wrapped up, right? I know there's still some free agents out there, but there's really no impact players left that will truly change a team's win-loss total or truly change how we view a team heading into the draft. So with that said, I want to take a look back at free agency. There was two moves that I thought really shaped the entire free agent period. What was an historical free agent offseason in the NFL? I thought there were two moves that shaped the entire offseason. I'll tell you what those two moves are when we return. Let's go to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey here with you on a Monday morning. We appreciate you joining us and making us a part of your Monday. Starting the week off with here, with us here, I should say, on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So as we know, this has been, I would say, the the busiest and most impactful, craziest NFL offseason we have ever seen. So many big time moves, so many big names changing teams. It was insanity. It was pure anarchy. In the NFL world. And I think two trades, two moves really shaped this, really kind of triggered every other team to act in what became an arms race in the AFC. So the two moves that I think shaped the craziness of what has been the craziest NFL offseason are the Russell Wilson trade and the Devonta Adams trade. Those two moves, I think, really were the catalysts and the reasons why basically almost half the league, one way or another, was impacted. Those two trades impacted the most teams. And those two trades, especially, I think, really set off what was a total race uh, in the AFC to where every single team felt like they added big-time players and were all going for it at the same time. Let's start with Russell Wilson to Denver. Because I thought really that trade, the Broncos landing Russell Wilson, it forced every other team in the AFC to step it up. Because when you see that move go down, and really what was the first big domino to fall, it not only made the Broncos immediate Super Bowl contenders in the AFC, right? Like you look at now, they have Russell Wilson, you have a really solid O-line, you have really a, a ton of, uh, of deep and talented skilled players, you have a really good defense. That one trade took the Broncos from middle of the pack, bottom of the barrel, to now instant Super Bowl contenders overnight. So now if you are a team in the AFC West or in the AFC, where you feel confident about where you were, you had to reassess that quickly because of the Broncos and where they basically jumped into the deep end of the pool and immediately raced to the top of the AFC. That woke up every other team that was a contender in the AFC and basically forced them to make some sort of impactful move. 
Like, I could easily argue that Russell Wilson trade from going from Seattle to Denver easily, easily impacted at least five AFC teams and forced them to make a move. Because if you look at what happened since then, right, the domino effect after Russell Wilson was traded to Seattle, uh, traded to Denver, I don't think, I could be wrong, but my opinion is, my view on it is, I don't think as many teams are as aggressive as they were in the AFC if it wasn't for the Russell Wilson trade. If you had the Broncos, I don't know, let's say running it back with Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater, or I don't know, traded for Mitch or signed Mitch Trubisky, signed Jameis Winston, maybe got even Kirk Cousins. I don't think as many teams are being as aggressive as they were in adding key pieces this offseason as they basically had to be when Russell Wilson gets traded to the AFC and now instantly makes a team that was nowhere near playoff contender last year instant Super Bowl contenders. Because I'll say this, I don't think it's a coincidence that after the Russell Wilson trade goes down, that week you had the Chargers adding J.C. Jackson, biggest corner you know, addition um on the Frazier market, signed him to a big-time contract. You traded for Khalil Mack. Big-time move there by LA trying to shore up their defense. You had the Raiders in a mega blockbuster move that we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, trade for Devontae Adams. They signed Chandler Jones. So again, you have two important uh, moves made in your own division, whereas the Chargers went for defense in J.C. Jackson and Khalil Mack, both designed to slow down Russell Wilson. You have the Raiders trading for Devonta Adams to help boost the offense and also getting Chandler Jones the ability to get after Russell Wilson and take him down. You had the Bills add Von Miller, what was a massive contract. I know technically you can look at it and there's you know there's areas where you can look at it more of it's like a three-year, $60 million deal than six years, 120. I get it, but either way, six years, 120 is a massive deal for the Bills. They went all in to get a pass rusher. The Browns added to Sean Watson. Now puts them in the Super Bowl contender category. Dolphins traded for Tyreek Hill. Like, I think all these moves were set off, were motivated because of the Broncos being uber aggressive, landing Russell Wilson, and now putting themselves squarely in the Super Bowl contention race. If the Broncos don't get Russell Wilson, I don't think a lot of these teams are making as drastic and as impactful moves as they did. Because look at the Bills. If the Bills ran it back this year, if they didn't add Von Miller and they ran back their team from 2021, I mean, the Bills have a ton of talent. The Bills were 13 seconds away from beating the Chiefs in Arrowhead and going to the AFC title game. And who knows? Maybe they match up better. Maybe they play better in the second half than the Chiefs did. And maybe they're the team in the Super Bowl. And who knows? Maybe they beat the Rams. So it's not crazy to say the Bills were 13 seconds away from possibly winning the Super Bowl. So if they ran it back, no one's saying boots. Okay. Let's just make sure if we get a lead late against Patrick Holmes, we don't play prevent defense. The Chargers have a lot of talent. As we know, they were super close, you know, a few seconds away themselves from getting a tie and going into the playoffs. And you think Justin Herbert in year number three now will get even better. They still have all the offensive weapons at his disposal with re-signing Mike Williams. So, okay, fine. The Chargers run it back. Their defense still is not great. Not self-concerned. But they would be definitely still viable enough uh, to make a playoff spot. The Browns had Baker Mayfield. Now, I know Baker was coming off of a horrible 2021 season, but let's not forget Baker Mayfield got the Browns to the playoffs for the first time in almost two decades. He won a playoff game in Cleveland for the first time in 26 years. So again, he was at least able to accomplish something that hasn't been done in Cleveland in you know 20, you know know 26 years. That's a big accomplishment. So it's not like he's just you know a, a throwaway piece 
Sure, again, 2021 was not great. But you look at the Browns, they went for the full upgrade in Deshaun Watson. I think their aggressiveness, in part, was due to the fact that the Broncos were able to get Russell Wilson. The Raiders, in a very competitive AFC West, made the playoffs last year. New head coach, new GM. You think, okay, if they run things back, they still have enough talent there to make another playoff run. But I do think because the Broncos were able to land the big fish, because they got Russell Wilson and catapulted themselves right to the top of the AFC, I think all those other teams felt like they had to respond. Like they had to make a move themselves. It was why the Chargers went heavy on defense. It was why the Raiders added, you know, Derek Carr's best friend and went all in for Devontae Adams. It was why the Bills, you know, went hard in getting Von Miller and making sure he was choosing Buffalo. Why the Browns got themselves truly a franchise quarterback they can rely on now um, for the first time in maybe their franchise history in, you know, in decades. So that move, I think, the Russell Wilson trade, one of the first moves made, really, after Aaron Rodgers decided he was returning to Green Bay, that next move, that first real major trade, I think set off a spark that all the, all the other dominoes fell. You can point back to Russell Wilson trade being the reason why. So for me, that is the most impactful move of the offseason. Russell Wilson trading, uh, getting traded from Seattle to, to Denver, I think, forced every other team in the AFC to make a corresponding move to get themselves in an even better position to contend. And we saw that and what led to, again, the craziest and frenziest offseason of the NFL. But that's not the only impactful move. Because I think that there's another one on a slightly lesser scale, but still, you know, still having a big impact on multiple teams, is the Devonta Adams trade. Like, I don't know about you. I was very surprised when Russell Wilson was traded to Denver. I was floored. I was shocked. When the Devontae Adams move uh, trade from the um, from the Packers to the Raiders went down, my, my jaw was on the ground. It took me like 20 minutes to even just wrap my head around what just happened. I, I couldn't believe. Insanely shocked that the Bron- uh, that the Packers not only traded Devontae Adams, but traded him to the Raiders. But that trade, you could look at, open the door now for other trades to made. It basically made it easier for teams to accept, okay, we can't play, uh, we can't pay everyone. We can't pay premium money to our number one wideout. Well, it's okay to trade it. Because I don't think the Tyreek Hill trade happens from the Chiefs to the Dolphins. I don't think it goes down if Devontae Adams isn't traded from the Packers to the Raiders. And you can even kind of hear when the Chiefs are talking about the move and talking about the trade, they even cited themselves. The Devontae Adams trade kind of making it a possibility kind of open their eyes so you know what it's not the craziest thing in the world to trade a top three receiver now the circumstances in green bay were a little different than they were in kansas city and Devontae adams and the packers were going to pay Devontae adams all the money he wanted even more Devontae felt put out by the fact that the packers really didn't come to the table and talk about negotiation earlier and there was a dispute about how much guaranteed money there would be so Devontae was not playing on the franchise tag. He said, I'm not going to play for you. The Packers did not want to play hardball. Instead, trade him to the Raiders for a first and second round pick. So the Packers realized, all right, this is not going to end in our favor. And we're going to move on from what is a top three receiver, arguably the best receiver in the NFL. But you hear Andy Reid when he's at the um, owners meetings last week, basically saying, once that Devontae trade went down, because they're working their own contract extension with Tyreek Hill, there was some dispute about you know whether Tyreek Hill, how he was going to be the highest paid receiver in the NFL. That's what he wanted to be. 
And you saw after the Devonta Adams trade, Tyreek Hill said, I want, you know, to be number one in the NFL, I deserve it. And that's where the Chiefs were like, I don't know if we can make it happen. But they saw the Devonte trade go down and said, you know what? Find the precedent has been set. We now, it won't be the most outrageous thing in the world to trade a top three receiver because we can't pay him enough money. Now, I would have paid him if I was Kansas City. Kansas City felt confident in their ability to draft and sign other players to replace Tyree Kill's production. But that trade to from uh, from Kansas City to Miami does not happen if that trade from Green Bay to Las Vegas doesn't happen first. Javonta Adams leaves the Packers, leaves Aaron Rodgers, goes to play with Derek Carr, and now that opened the door for Tyree Kill to be traded to the Dolphins. And now when you look at it, I think that impacts you know multiple teams as well because now you look at the Dolphins, the biggest thing from that trade from the Dolphins is, okay, there's now playoff expectations, but also now the microscope is right on Tua. This is now a make or break year for Tua. He's going to year number three. The offensive line is getting better, right? Signing Teron Armstead now gives him a chance to be upright and have time to throw. You have now a deep threat in Tyreek Hill. You have a, another great outlet receiver in Jalen Waddle. The pieces are there for Tua to show whether he can truly be a franchise QB or not. So that now impacts Miami's future going forward because now this year you can concretely make a decision whether Tua is your guy or not. So that trade kind of cements the fact that Tua's, this is basically a tryout for Tua this year. Can he play or can he play? You now have, um, I think this even impacts the Devontae Adams trade for Green Bay because now also too, if you're the Packers, if you're Aaron Rodgers, I think this trade opens up some more questions. I know everyone is sick and tired of talking about Aaron Rodgers' future. We just talked about it for basically a year straight, whether he's going to play or whether he's going to leave. But now if you're Aaron Rodgers, apparently and reportedly he knew that Devontae, a trade was going to come before he even re-signed, and he basically knew 2022 he was going to be, he was going to be playing without his number one target. He accepted that and still re-signed. Well, if you're Aaron Rodgers, Right now, you're looking at receiving core of Randall Cobb, of Alan Lazard, of Equinemia St. Brown. If you draft a receiver, it doesn't work out. If they don't even draft a receiver, and you're kind of looking at this receiving core of not great receivers, and your 2022 season takes a hit in part because you're missing your number one target, I mean, if, what if Green Bay doesn't go all out to get a receiver? What if they can't trade for DK Metcalf or Tyler Lockett? What if they basically say, hey, Aaron, Make the best of what you got here. You're Aaron Rodgers. Are you sure you want to stay in Green Bay? Are you sure you want to finish out your career with the Packers? If his main motivation is winning ring number two, if that's why he returned to Green Bay because he felt like that was the best spot for him to win a championship. You're looking at now a situation where you don't have a number one wide receiver. You are clearly behind, I think, the Rams and the Bucks for at least 2022. You're not Super Bowl contenders this season. If that doesn't change... Are we sure he's going to be sticking there full-time? Are we sure he's going to be in Green Bay for another three years? I'm not so sure. I think we could see a possibility of Aaron Rodgers requesting a trade down the line in part if Green Bay can't do what they can to replace Devontae Adams. So I think that trade is going to have not only had a major impact and allowing the Chiefs to trade Tyreek Hill, kind of now opening the door for the Dolphins to make a decision on a make-or-break season for Tua and raising their floor for this season, I think it also brings questions um, to Aaron Rodgers' future again of whether he will truly finish his career out in Green Bay like we thought he would when he re-signed, but now I think the question opens back up again when a few days later, after re-signing, 
his number one receiver, one of you know the best player he's ever played with, the corner Aaron Rodgers, when he's traded to the Raiders. So those, to me, are the two biggest moves of this NFL offseason. The biggest one, by far, being Russell Wilson getting traded to Denver, because I think that kind of set off the spark that led to the, the gold rush, if you will, in the AFC. The Bills were adding, the, the Chargers were adding, the Raiders were adding, the Browns were adding, Dolphins were adding. You know, plenty of teams in the AFC basically stacked up an arms race against each other in order to try to what up and try to be in Super Bowl contention. I think all of that was sparked by the Broncos getting Russell Wilson. And you look at the Devontae Adams trade. I think the Devontae Adams trade in and of itself is uh, impactful because it impacts the uh, the Packers, makes them worse. Impacts the Raiders now because it opens up, you know, their uh, their floor and puts even, you know, a bigger spotlight on, on Derek Carr now to see if he can win with all the weapons around him. It allowed the Chiefs to trade Tyree Kill, trade him away because they couldn't agree on a contract. They opened up the, the door where Tua, similar to Derek Carr, is having all the pressure on him to succeed now in 2022. That divide to Adams trade impacted four teams as well. So you have two impactful moves that really, you know, change and shape the way 10 teams in the NFL offseason went about their business. Not many moves are, are more impactful than that. So is there, what in your mind was the biggest move this offseason? Was it the Russell Wilson trade? Was it Aaron Rodgers staying in Green Bay? Was it Tom Brady unretiring? What move was the biggest and most impactful in your mind this offseason? Love to get your thoughts on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show or WWSRN underscore radio uh, on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network or on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network as well. When we return... The NBA MVP race is a hotly contested one. We are coming down the stretch here. Final week of the season. Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo. The three-man race for the MVP. Who is your MVP pick? I'll tell you mine when we return. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey here with you on this Monday morning. We appreciate you and welcome you into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. As always, the 10 o'clock hour is brought to you by LC Designs. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions, especially now as the weather gets nicer and spring is really starting to uh, to come around. So make sure your guests, if you're hosting some people or just out with friends, are happily fed with some delicious and, and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com, lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. I did not, I'll be honest, I did not watch the, the Grammy Awards last night, but I did notice some of the outfits that were worn. And let me just say this, I guess this applies whether it's any award show, really just in general. I have no idea what fashion is anymore. What I think looks good, what I think, you know, people should be wearing, and then what you actually see people wear it is so ridiculous. Like, I think at this point, fashion is this, if you're rich, you pull it off and you convince people it looks good. If you are not a celebrity, if you're just a, a common folk like me and you, we wear what celebrities like, let's say, Justin Bieber wore last night. 
where it looked like he was wearing a, a you know a tank top, a white tank top underneath, and an oversized, like a way oversized suit. Where it looks like, you know, he took his dad's suit and just threw it on there with some moon boots. That that's called fashion. If me and you wear that, we are getting laughed down the street and people are giving us weird looks. People like Justin Bieber wear it and now all of a sudden it's the brand new thing in fashion. I don't get it. I don't get fashion. I guess I never will, but it's just one of those things where it seems like if you have the money, if you have the fame, you can basically wear whatever you want. People are like, oh, fashionable. That is what is in now. That is the new look. Oversized suits. But if me and you wearing it, again, it's a horrible look. So I guess that's really what fashion is. I never want to keep up with the trends. I don't really get anything that you know is in style these days, is in vogue. But just last night, I kind of reaffirmed that. I'm looking at some of these pictures of what you know some of the artists are wearing into the Grammys. Who dressed you? Are you just basically putting a blindfold on and picking clothes left and right and just throwing them all together? I guess that's what it looks like, but I guess that's what fashion is. Maybe I'll do that for work today. I'm gonna close my eyes, go into my closet and just pick up four different things and just see, throw them all together and call it fashion. That is what fashion is in 2022. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Saw that last night on Twitter, it did crack me up a little bit. But let's get to the big discussion here for this 10 o'clock hour. The NBA MVP award is hot. Last week, it was very interesting. So you had ESPN reporter Tim Bonteps. He does this straw poll where he reaches out to 100 media members in the NBA and asks for their MVP vote. He tries to mirror it like the voting process itself. So he's done it a few times. His final rendition of the poll was last week. It came out. He had 100 media members participated. Last week, Nikola Jokic was number one in this straw poll, 62 first place votes. Embiid was number two with 29. Giannis was third with nine first place votes. So when it comes out last week, when there's really only two weeks left in the season, again, this is unofficial. This is not every single media member that's voting for, MV, uh, for the MVP. But it seems like right now Jokic is clearly in first place and is on his way. The betting odds are also favoring Jokic as well. So betting-wise, according to the straw poll, it seems Nicole Jokic is on his way to his second straight MVP award. But for me, I think the MVP is Giannis. If I was a voter... When I had one vote, I am giving my MVP award to Giannis. Because not only is he the best basketball player in the NBA right now, he is doing what I think you really want and need your MVP to do. Playing their best basketball when it counts the most. When you look at this straw poll, again, an unofficial poll, but you see Giannis way behind Jokic in first place and even well behind Embiid for second. Again, 62 for Jokic, 29 for Embiid, just 9 for Giannis. Heading into the final few weeks of the season here, when this was released last week, he is far behind. But I do think two reasons why there is not enough love for for Giannis nationally is Milwaukee's slow start to the season they had and voter fatigue. Like, you look at how the Bucs started. You want to call it a championship hangover. You want to call it, you know, lack of focus, whatever it was. Bucs start off the season 6-8 in the first month of the year. Defense was a total mess, and they have recovered and bounced back since, but it was a, a little bit of a rough start for Milwaukee. But I don't think you can eliminate Giannis, right, uh, Giannis from, the, from the discussion because he had a bad first month. I also don't think you can punish him for being what, is, what he has been is consistently dominant. But he won the MVP award back-to-back years 2019 and 2020. Jokic won it last year. So I guess, or I get, yes, 
he didn't, you know, it's not like he's going back to back and voters don't want to give him a third in a row, but they would give him three and four years. And I get, yes, Jokic won the award last year, and here I am talking about voter fatigue as the guy who won it last year is leading in the unofficial poll and is a betting favorite again this year. But I do think this year for Jokic is way different than last year because this year, Nikola is doing it without two of his best players, basically for the entire season, in Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. So while, yes, the, you can say voter fatigue should not you know, factor in here because the guy who won it last year is leading again this year. But I do think it's even different because of the fact that the Nuggets are missing two of their best players and Jokic, while doing a lot of the same things last year, is now doing it with, less, with a lesser squad around. So I get that, and you can make one case that voter fatigue doesn't apply. I still think it does because, again, when you look at Giannis winning you know, back-to-back in 2019-2020, Voters will look for deficiencies to just kind of get someone different, right? I mean, it's human nature. You always want someone different. We always hate those who win a ton. You want to see someone else win. That is where I think the voter fatigue comes in for Giannis. But I think what Giannis has done this year has been more impressive than what Embiid has done and what the Joker has done. Like, you look at just the fact that, like we said, when he won the two MVPs in 2019-2020, he right now is playing even better than he did those two years he won the back-to-back MVPs. Like, let's look at his numbers first of all. This season, Giannis is averaging 30.1 points per game. One of the league leaders of the NBA. He is just behind Embiid. He is just behind LeBron James. He is 0.3, 0.3 points per game away from surpassing LeBron James for first place in the scoring title. And LeBron right now still has to play two games just to be eligible for the scoring title. So Giannis easily now the last few games can pass LeBron, pass Embiid, and become the scoring champ. So he's averaging 30.1 points per game, and he's averaging 11.6 rebounds per game. Again, the raw numbers for the entire season are very impressive. But like I talked about before, you want your MVP to be playing like an MVP. You want your MVP to be playing the best basketball when it matters most. When it matters most is down the stretch. You look at after the All-Star break is, I think, a good sample size to look at because that is really where teams start to race for home. Right? You look, okay, the season starts, you're kind of slowly plodding along. As we know, the NBA season is more of a marathon, not a sprint. But the NBA All-Star weekend, late February, you come out of that. Now, all of a sudden, there's basically just about a month, six weeks left in the season. That is where teams, that is where championship teams start to round into form and playing their best basketball heading to the postseason. And that is what Giannis has done. After the postseason, he's already been playing consistently great throughout this entire season. But then after the All-Star break, he took his game to another level. And that is what you want your MVP to do. Is excel even more when the games matter most. You look at after the All-Star break. Giannis has averaged 32.1 points per game, which is third in the NBA. He, before the All-Star break, was averaging 29.4. So he's getting basically an extra bucket a game, which is important when you're playing some of these big teams coming down the stretch. He is fourth in the NBA since the All-Star break in rebounds per game. So again, he's a monster on the glass. He's a monster on the defensive end. He is now averaging over 32 points per game since the All-Star break. And you look at some of the wins the Bucs have had since that break in late February. Again, they are beating some of the best teams in the NBA. They have wins over the Heat, the Bulls. The Suns, the Hawks, the Jazz, the Nets, the Sixers. They are racking up wins against some of the best teams in the NBA. And again, now as you come down the stretch, when you're in an Eastern Conference, 
that one through four is so tightly contested where you have the Heat, you have the Sixers, you have the Bucks, and you have the Celtics, all four kind of jockeying and rotating positions uh, on a daily basis almost. You need your best player. You need your MVP of the league to be playing his best basketball when it matters the most. Seeding matters. Seeding absolutely matters. So now you have Giannis, again, turning it up a level and playing his best when it matters. Like, if, for example, the, a few years ago when Russell Westbrook won the award, he was statistically one of the most dominant players in all the NBA. But look at where the Thunder were that year. They finished, I believe, was sixth in the West. They were lost in the first round of the playoffs to the Rockets and James Harden. Russell Westbrook, numbers-wise, put up a lot of big numbers, but it didn't result in wins. It didn't uh, result in on-court success. For the MVP award, you need your star player not only to put up big numbers, but to have that result in wins. And that is what is happening here for the Bucs. They're 11-4 since the All-Star break. Giannis, again, is playing some of his best basketball uh, of, of the season down the stretch here. And he's playing some of his biggest games against the biggest opponents. Like, look at just week, this, uh, this week alone. They played the Sixers earlier this week at a big showdown between uh, Embiid and Giannis for an MVP award. The season series is tied 1-1. So now you get a tiebreaker here and you get to kind of have a little advantage um, going to the MVP race. What did Giannis do? 40 points versus the Sixers, including the game-saving block on Embiid to preserve the win and get Milwaukee out of there with the win. A huge win for the standings, a huge win for the the MVP race because you have Giannis, again, being unstoppable and getting to the point where late in the third quarter, uh, the Bucs are down by double digits. Giannis goes on a run late third, early fourth quarter to get these uh, Bucs back in the game. Your MVP raised his level of play and carried the rest of the team with him in order to get the win. And then the very next game against the Nets, drops 44 points. You had Chris Middleton ejected during the game. You had um, Giannis, as we know, iffy on the three-point shot, iffy on the free-throw line. Well, he hit the game-tying three. Took two three-pointers, by the way, within the last minute, down by three, in order to tie the game. So that should show you where his confidence is at and where the Bucks are at with Giannis and his three-point shot improving. He made some big free throws in overtime as well. He did everything you need in order for the Bucks to beat the Nets in overtime with KD on the court, with Kyrie on the court. So two of some of the biggest games uh, of the season for Milwaukee, Giannis has played his best. So he's played well. He's been consistently dominant all season long. It's not like he has struggled for most of the season and now he's turning it up late. And there's some recency bias. He has been consistently one of the best players and one of the most consistent players in all the NBA this season. And now he was already a great player heading into the All-Star break. After the All-Star break, he has taken his game to an even higher level. That is what the great ones do. We see it all the time with LeBron James. But LeBron James has been known to get his body in a rhythm where, sure, it's a little slow in October and November. He's still great and dominant in in December and January and even February. But as we see, he kind of really hones in and locks in when it comes right around March. And he plays and, and and ramps himself up to play the best basketball in March, then even get better in April, get even better in May, and then peak in June. We've seen it for really the last decade, LeBron kind of run that formula. That is what the great ones do. That is what Giannis is doing this season. 
Great, 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 great. All of a sudden now when it matters most down the stretch, boom, elevates to the next level. That to me is why he should be the MVP. Not taking anything away from what Embiid has done this season. Not taking anything away from what Jokic has done this season. But I do think when your team needs you the most, when you are coming down the stretch, I think it matters that your MVP plays their best game against some of the biggest opponents on your schedule. Giannis has done that. Embiid has been consistently dominant all season long. And we know he's done so uh, without Ben Simmons for most of the season. Now he's added James Harden. He's still you know, keeping up. But I do say, I do think that tiebreaker having the 2-1 uh, series advantage for the Bucks over the Sixers does give a feather in the cap to Giannis. When you look at the Nuggets, fair or not, they are fifth in the West. Again, Jokic is doing it without Michael Porter Jr., without um, Jamal Murray. Very impressive. But let's just call for what it is, fair or not, teams and voters, or I should say voters, take team standings into account. Bucks are in second place in the East, um, or third place in the East, excuse me, in a tie. Um, but the Nuggets are in fifth. I think that's a differentiating factor as well. For me, your MVP should be playing his best basketball down the stretch when it matters the most. That's what Giannis is doing. That's why I would vote him as MVP. It's not recency bias. It's not trying to reward one guy for a good month of, of basketball when he basically ignored, didn't play well to the first four months of the season. Giannis has been great this entire season. And taking it to the next level in, in the stretch run here, I think, is the reason why I would vote him as my MVP. How about you? Who is your NBA MVP so far? It's a very hotly contested race. We basically have a week left in the season, and we are down to three. Jokic, Embiid, Giannis. Embiid, big game yesterday, 44 points after the game. Talking about he doesn't know what else he has to do, what else he has to do in order to win the MVP award. I hear you. I think Giannis has been a little bit better, a little bit more dominant uh, than Embiid. It's a tough race. It's really brutal because whoever loses, you know, you can make the argument, should, you know, would win the MVP award in most seasons. It's one of those years, though, where you have three great cases for three great players. So I would give it to Giannis. Who would you give it to? Love to hear your thoughts here on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show, or WWSRN underscore radio. We're on YouTube as well. Check us out, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, I'm a sucker for these. I love them. Caesars last week released their NFL win totals for every single team. And I, th- I found a few that were very interesting where I think Vegas is underrating a few teams and overrating a few teams. So we'll give you some of the best win totals and some of the worst win totals here when we do return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. We're us, the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If you hear some chirping in the background, I do over my shoulder have the window in my uh, apartment open here, and there's a, a little tree by my uh, by my window. And now that spring is in the air, now that's starting to get you know warmer again, the birds are out. The birds are chirping. I heard a, a little birdie chirping, sounded pretty close to the apartment. Now the issue is there's no screens in my window. I know you really can't see on the live stream because of the glare, but the two windows behind me they are. You know, obviously there, they're facing the street. 
but no screen. So I do have one of the windows cracked open just a bit to get some fresh air in the apartment. But now I'm starting to realize as it gets nicer out, the no screen is gonna be an issue. So if you can do me a favor, it sounds like there's a few birds in the tree nearby. If you see you know, a bird flying in the apartment, please give me a heads up. Please write on, on Facebook at Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Here you can find the live stream or Twitter. Tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. Please let me know if there's a bird flying in the apartment because obviously that's gonna be uh, an issue I gotta fix and not great and probably would derail the rest of the show. So a heads up in case things go south would be tremendous, but hopefully the birds are enjoying the show, but staying on their turf, at least for the next half hour until the show ends at 11 a.m. Eastern. So I wanna get into one of my favorite things. I am not a, a betting man, full disclosure. I, I am not a, a daily you know, uh, gambler. I don't really bet on many games. One of the things that I do love to do, I am a sucker for, are totals. I love win total bets. I do love um, over-under numbers in college football and the NFL. So anytime numbers are revealed, even if it's March, I get excited, I get giddy, and I start already looking at and seeing what are good bets, what are bad bets. So Caesars last week released their 2022 win totals for each and every team. And I think there's a few numbers that Vegas is really overrating a few teams and giving them much more credit than they deserve. And they are underrating a few teams where teams are not getting the uh, respect that they deserve. So let's start with the positives first. So let's start with some teams that I think should be getting more respect and will clear their over-under number. Let's start with the Broncos. Uh, Caesars has the Broncos win total number right at 10, 10 even. So 10 and 7 or 10 and 7 you push. Obviously 11 wins or more uh, you win. Anything under 10 you lose. I think this is a great bet for Denver because for me, I think the Broncos are the most talented team in the AFC. We talked about it a few weeks ago on the show. I think the number one contender, the team to beat in the AFC, are the Denver Broncos after getting Russell Wilson. Because you look at this roster, there's really no weakness with this team. Quarterback, elite. They have really good skill position players. They have a solid offensive line. They have a really good defense on all three levels. They can get after the quarterback. They have really good lockdown secondary. I don't see a real weakness on this Broncos team. So for me, they are the team to beat in the AFC. In a loaded, loaded AFC, I am giving the Broncos right now the nod over the Bills, over the Chiefs as the best team in the conference. So with that said, get, you know, tell me the Broncos are going to go 10-7 or Vegas saying that they think they're going to go 10-7. To me, it's a, it's a layup. I think the Broncos will be a lot better than just 10-7. I get the AFC is very challenging. I get that they are the in the hardest division uh, in football. Right? The AFC West, where the Raiders reloaded, where the Chargers reloaded. The Chiefs are still the Chiefs, although they did take a setback by uh, trading Tyreek Hill. But they still have Patrick Holmes. You still have Andy Reid. You still have Travis Kelce. But if you look at their schedule, let's say practically, where even if they go 3-3 three and three against the AFC West, where they beat every team once and they lose every, uh, every team once, the rest of the schedule, right? if you say 10-7 and seven is the number, I can't find four more losses on this team's schedule where I would feel good about taking the under, about having them you know, have less than 10 wins. I think they'll beat the Cardinals. I think they're a better team than the Cardinals. Plus, we don't know, you know, we know the opponents. We don't know the actual schedule. If this game is later in the season, anytime after Thanksgiving, guaranteed win for Denver because Arizona showed under Cliff and Kyler they cannot play well towards the end of the season. So I don't trust the Cardinals, and I don't think the talent in Arizona matches what Denver has. Not to mention, again, this is later in the season. It's a gimme win for uh, for the Broncos. Rams, especially NLA, is going to be a tough game. 
Colts and 49ers pose a challenge, but question marks for each team. Um, you know, Colts, you know, how good is Matt Ryan going to be? Colts need some help at wide receiver. Obviously, the big question with the 49ers is Trey Lance. What is he going to develop into? How good is he going to be? How quickly is he going to hit the ground running? So there are some, definitely some challenges. Rams, Colts, 49ers outside of the AFC West. But really, other than that, there's really nothing. So even if they lose all three of those games, the Rams, the Colts, and the 49ers, and they lose three games in the AFC West, there's six losses. I can't find another one. So I think in worst case scenario, this team is going 11-6. and six. This team to me is the best in the AFC. I think they'll be better than 10-7. and seven. I think the Broncos are being underrated by Vegas, so their win total being just at 10. Another team I think is getting disrespected, the Bengals. The Bengals number is 9.5. And, and, and for me, Cincinnati has secretly, low-key, have had one of, they've had one of the best off-seasons of any team in the NFL. What do we say leading into the Super Bowl after the Super Bowl? The Bengals only had one thing to worry about this offseason, offensive line. Draft offensive linemen, sign offensive linemen, trade for offensive linemen. Use all the draft capital, use all the free agent money you have, and get five guys that can keep Joe Burrow upright. Cincinnati's credit, they have gone out and done that. They signed Ted Karras, a really solid uh, center that should solidify the offensive line. They signed Alex Kappa, a really good guard, one of the best guards, uh, maybe arguably the best guard on the Frazier market. They, they pried him away from Tampa Bay to get him signed with Cincinnati. They signed Lyle Collins, who was uh, moved out or was cut from the uh, from the Cowboys. They couldn't fit the cap, uh, couldn't get the, the number correct, you know, salary-wise. So you have three solid offensive linemen that Cincinnati was able to add to their team this offseason in Collins, Kappa, Karras. Tackle, guard, center. You now are giving Joe Burrow the only thing he needed, which was time. Which was health. Which is him not getting beaten up left and right. So now, one of the biggest and really only weaknesses on this team was shored up. So you have a somewhat, let's say, reliable O-line, like a, a, a competent O-line. You still have Jamar Chase, you still have T. Higgins, you still have Tyler Boyd, you still have Joe Mixon, who now should be even a, a better running back than he was in 2021, because now the holes, in theory, will be bigger and wider than they were last year. The defense is still solid. I mean, I think this team is getting double-digit wins. Depending on the Deshaun Watson suspension, how long it is, the Bengals could win this division. If it's anything under four games or less, I would pick the Browns. I like the Browns a lot. But we don't know what Deshaun Watson's suspension is going to be. So that makes it tough. But I think the Bengals are definitely getting double-digit wins this year. Having that number at 9.5, I think, is Vegas underrating them. They This is a really good team. I think they're not a flash in the pan. I don't think this is a one-hit wonder. I think Joe Burrow's legit. I think this team is legit. They'll be back right in the mix again next year. So I will absolutely take the over on the Bengals 9.5. That, to me, is a really... Uh, that's a team that's getting underrated uh, by Vegas uh, big time. And even the Rams, like it's, it's tough to say that they're getting underrated when they had the second highest win total in the NFL at 10 and a half. But I think the Rams, kind of similar to the Broncos, are a team that's going to be in the high double digit win category. The Rams are back and even better than they were last year. Like I would say, no, you know, I would say, even for the great year that Matthew Stafford had last year, I think he'll even be more consistent and better in year number two. Like he did have, he got off to a hot start, if you remember, and then had that midseason lull where he was throwing pick sixes, you know, to the Packers, to the 49ers, 
to the Titans. They had that real ugly stretch where they lost three games in a row, and Matthew Stafford is not playing very good football at all. Um, rebounded a little bit towards the bottom uh, end of the year, but really, honestly, was going to the playoffs not on the best of notes. Like even some games they're winning against a banged up Ravens team, they, they needed you know to win at the last minute, and were you know or the Vikings game when Matthew Stafford thrown a ton of picks. Like he had a lot of interceptions in his first year towards this, really the second half of the season. I think that now he'll clean that up a little bit. I think he'll be more comfortable in the offense for year number two and be a little bit more consistent. So you had that consistency. You bring back Cooper Cup. You sign what I think is one of the most underrated signings of anything uh, of any team this offseason and getting Allen Robinson, who I think is a tremendous receiver. A lot of people do like and call one of the most underrated receivers in the NFL. I think he's a true number one receiver. The issue is he's played with Blake Bortles, with Blaine Gabbert, with Mitch Trubisky, with Andy Dalton, with Nick Foles. He's been, whether it's Jacksonville or Chicago, been everywhere where the quarterbacks stink and haven't been able to set him up to really show off his talents. So I think Allen Robinson now going to LA is going to ball out. When he is, you know, when Cooper Cup is still the main guy getting all the attention, and now you're going to allow Allen Robinson a lot of one-on-one, good luck. Allen Robinson, I think, is going to have a massive year um, in that offense. You traded Robert Woods, takes it, but okay, that's just more, you know, um, more passes for Allen Robinson to eat up, so he'll ball out. Big time, it will, you know, you're able to prevent Aaron Donald and Sean McVay from retiring, so that is massive. I don't like that both were, you know, considering it and it was out there, but hey, End of the day, Donald is back, McVay is back. So even with a tough schedule that LA has, I think they're definitely going over uh, 11 wins. Or at least getting getting over 10 wins, I should say. So the number's 10.5. I think Vegas is underrating them. I think the Rams are back and even better than they were last year. And they will clear the number of 10.5. So three teams I think Vegas is strongly underrating. The Rams at 10.5, the Bengals at 9.5, and, and the Broncos at 10. On the flip side, I think there are three teams Vegas is overrated. Number one is the Packers. The Packers are tied for the highest over-under number in the NFL at 11.5. 11.5 is the Packers' number. And look, you look at just for what happened and what it is, the Packers got worse this offseason, not better. They lost Devonta Adams, the best receiver in the NFL. You lost to Darius Smith. I know he was hurt for most of, of last year, so it's not like it's you know you truly lose it immediately. But he is a tremendous pass rusher for that defense. So now you are going into 2021 with Aaron Rodgers having really zero weapons at the moment. Sure, they could draft a, a receiver, maybe Chris Olave, maybe you trade up to get Garrett Wilson. But it's still it's hard to rely on a rookie receiver. You're going to need, frankly that receiver to have a Jamar Chase-like impact in order for uh, the Packers to kind of make up for the loss of Devontae Adams. I don't really see that happening. Jamar Chase to me is one of one. One of one. Um, So I think taking away some of the best receivers and best options that Aaron Rodgers had to work with is not going to help. Their defense, again, losing Zedaria Smith, although they'll get, you know, uh, Jair Alexander back healthy is an upgrade, but still I think losing Smith is a big loss. And you look at their schedule. Their schedule is tough. It's going to be tough to get to 12 wins if you're the Packers. They have uh, are facing the Rams, the Bucks, the Bills. I think the Vikings are going to be tough this year. I think the Minnesota could definitely win one out of two. The Cowboys, as we know, especially early in the year, are um, 
a regular season, you know, heroes, if you will. First half of the year is when they truly try to win their Super Bowl. So if you get that game early in the year, that's a trouble spot for the Packers. The Titans are going to be tough. The Patriots are always, you know, well-coached and tough. Like, look at the Packers. They have been consistently great. They have won 13 games each last three years. I don't think they're getting 12. I really don't. That schedule we just laid out is tough. You take away Aaron Rodgers' best receiver. You lose some key pieces on the defense. I don't think this Packers team is getting 12 wins or more. So I think one of the worst bets, uh, one of the most overrated teams Vegas has are the Packers at 11 and a half. Another team I think Vegas is overrating. Now, these these next two are, are tough to say overrating with their numbers being low, but I think the Vegas is giving them even too much credit than they deserve. The Steelers at seven and a half. I think the Steelers are getting less than seven wins. I don't like the Steelers at all going into 2022. I'm not a fan still. I know they made some uh, changes. I'm still not a fan of their offensive line. And that is really where this starts. This team needs, needs to have a really solid offensive line to open up holes, uh, holes for Najee Harris and make Mitch Trubisky's life a lot easier. And right now, I don't think they've done enough to truly shore up that O-line to make Mitch's life easier, to make Najee's life especially a lot easier. So O-line to me is still in big trouble to where if they can't establish a run first and foremost, if they can't protect Mitch, they are screwed. And I still don't think they could do either very well. Mitch is really not much of an upgrade from Big Ben. Like Big Ben, let's just put a call for what it is, did not play very well his last year. He was older. He had some balance issues. If you watch some, you know, some of those viral clips on Twitter where he's like running and, and tripping over himself, his balance was there. His arm strength wasn't there. They weren't throwing the ball deep at all. With that said, Mitch Trubisky is more mobile. He's obviously younger, has a stronger arm. I don't think though Mitch is that much of an upgrade from Ben. I don't think Trubisky is very good. I'm not buying into him kind of saving the day in the short term here. You lose wide receiver depth with Juju Smith-Schuster signing in Kansas City. Um, you had a few other receivers go elsewhere. So I don't really think the wide receivers, I mean, Dante Johnson's number one. I'm not a big Dante Johnson guy. I think he drops the ball too much personally for me to be a, uh, for him to be a reliable receiver. The defense is still not very good at all. Like I know we're used to the steel curtain and, and Pittsburgh always having a really good defense and it helps when TJ Watt wins defensive player of the year. So he gets, you know, he gives that defense maybe some credit and, and more than they, than they deserve. But I don't think this defense is very good at all. Their run defense is one of the worst in the NFL. Secondary is okay, but they didn't really do much to address uh, the defensive side of the football. And when you look at the division and the conference they're in, everyone else got better. Like they are, to me, are easily the worst team in the AFC North. Browns are better, Bengals are better, Ravens are better. So you're the worst team in the AFC North. And you look at their schedule, there's only three teams, only three teams I could objectively say are the Steelers are better than. The Jets, the Falcons, the Panthers. Every other team I think is either slightly above Pittsburgh or way above, uh, way above the Steelers. So you're looking at three gimme wins. I don't see them winning four more games that are kind of punching above their weight, if you will. I don't think Mitch is the guy that is going to be much of an upgrade. I don't think the O-line is that much more improved. I don't, like the, I don't like the defense. So there's not, for me, a lot to like with the Steelers. Where I look at seven and a half, I would still say under. I would say under on seven and a half for the Steelers. I think even with a low number, Vegas is still overrating Pittsburgh a little bit. And finally, another team I think that is being overrated and maybe should have a lower number than given are the Seahawks. 
The Seahawks over under win total is six. So again, I get it. This is already kind of setting the bar very low, but this team is tanking. The Seahawks don't want to admit publicly they are tanking, but their actions show you and tell you they have no interest in winning games in 2022. They traded Russell Wilson. You could say, sure, they didn't have a choice. They didn't, but they traded Russell Wilson. Then they cut Bobby Wagner. If you were still trying to win, which what Pete Kyle, John Schneider still said they are committed to winning in 2022. Well, then if that was the case, you wouldn't have cut Bobby Wagner. Well, guess what? The Seahawks did that. So now you have one of the worst, worst rosters in all of the NFL. And when you look at what happened last year, Russell Wilson got hurt, yes. Missed three games and you know came back to really, you can make the argument, and did not play well till really the last few games or handful of games. The Seahawks last year were 7-10 with Russell Wilson starting 14 of the 17 games. You look at this year's roster where you lose Bobby Wagner, you lose Russell Wilson, and at the moment, you replace Russell Wilson with Drew Locke. You're telling me the Seahawks are only one win less with Drew Locke at quarterback than Russell Wilson from last year to this year? Hell no. The Seahawks are way worse than they were last year. They were 7-10 and 10 last year. I don't think saying they're going 6-11 is fair at all. I think they'll be one of the worst teams in the NFL. Their only strength uh, on the roster, the only position that is actually deep and good is receivers with DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. And guess what? There's no guarantee that one, if not both, will be on the roster. There's reports that the Seahawks are listening to trade offers for both Metcalf and Lockett. The Packers are interested after moving on from uh, Devontae. The Chiefs are interested after moving on from Tyreek Hill. So even if they trade one of those receivers, Seahawks are hurting their only strength. The O-line's not very good. Chris Carson's a solid running back, but can't stay healthy. The defense can't get after the passer. Their secondary is eh, is okay, not great. Jamal Adams is one of the most overpaid players in all the NFL. One of the most overrated players in all the NFL. So you look at what Seattle has right now on their roster. There is not a lot of talent there, and they are not in the process or not in the business right now of accumulating good players. Like, if they were truly trying to compete, they truly wanted to win and were chasing a wild card in 2022, explain to me why Baker Mayfield hasn't been traded to the Seahawks. It's a clear and obvious upgrade over Drew Locke. If the Seahawks truly wanted to win, they would not play this game of chicken or wait for Baker's price to drop because they would immediately need an upgrade and would not risk him going somewhere else. Seahawks have no interest in winning. Not this year. It's smart of them to trade. I think that's the actual, uh, smart of them to tank. I think that's actually the right philosophy for, for where this team is. But I think it's a mistake to bring back Pete Carroll at his age for a team that's going to be uh, in the dumps in 2022. This team sinks, but I think they'll be picking the top five on the 2023 draft. I think even six wins is asking too much for Seattle. This team is going and hammering the under. So three teams, I think Vegas, as Caesars put out their over-under win totals for 2022, three teams I think Vegas is overrating. Seahawks at six wins, Steelers at seven and a half, Packers at 11 and a half. I think all three of those teams are going under. And some teams I think Vegas is underrating. The Broncos, their win total set at 10, the Bengals at nine and a half, and the Rams at 10 and a half. I think all three of those teams are going over. So if you check out my Instagram page, Ryan Hickey Show on Instagram, very simple, very easy, Ryan Hickey Show on Instagram. In my story, I gave every single, I posted Caesars um, over under odds for every single team. So you can see every single team's number right there in front of you. Who in your mind 
is a team that is the most overrated in Vegas. Who is the most underrated? One team you think for sure is winning more games than Vegas is giving them credit for, and vice versa. Which one team do you think there's no shot in hell? They are winning as many games as Vegas is setting their number at. So love to hear your thoughts on either the most overrated or underrated team according to Caesars. We'll get your thoughts on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show at WWSRN underscore radio. You can write on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And you can also write on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network as well. When we return, the national title game is tonight. I'll give you my pick for who's winning between Kansas and Carolina when we return. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Back here on a Monday morning, wrapping up on the Ryan Hickey Show, breaking down as we are the national title game tonight between Kansas and Carolina. I think the Jayhawks are winning tonight for two reasons. I think it's a three-point shooting and the emotional exhaustion that UNC is facing going from Duke on Saturday night to now playing uh, Kansas tonight. Um, in the national title game. Let's start with the shooting. What did we say last week? No team is being able or no team can slow Kansas down if their three-point shooting is as consistent as it was in the second half against Miami. They hit five threes in the second half against Hurricanes. That opened up the entire floor for the Jayhawks. They had their way from the three-point and also down low where they are very um, skilled at scoring. And that's where a lot of their points do come from, points in the paint. Uh, driving, dunking, they score a lot within the you know the painted area. But now if you can hit the three ball consistently, which Kansas did in the second half against Miami, and they did so again against Villanova on Saturday, there is no team in the country that can slow down Kansas defensively. This team is so talented, where, whether it's the, the amount of players that can hit the three ball, five different players from Kansas hit a three on Saturday against Villanova. That opens up the lane for guys like Dave McCormick to just have himself a field day down low, career at 25 points. So when you're having and you're forced to guard the perimeter when the shots are raining down from three, and then also trying to, you know, clog the paint, you can't do both at once. And that kind of choice forces teams defensively to, to really not be able to suffocate the Jayhawks, really not be able to slow them down. Again, we saw it with a very good defensive team in Nova, really struggled for most of the game in trying to get any sort of stops. I get, sure, 13 out of 24 from three is not sustainable, but even uh, against Miami, hitting five threes in the second half, just five, opened up the rest of the floor and allowed Kansas to really have their way down low, which is really where their bread is buttered. So I think as long as they're hitting the three consistently, which they have in recent games, I think that will continue tonight, and that's going to really put UNC and stress their defense too much where they won't be able to get any stops. So I really like the three-point shooting, unlocking everything for Kansas offensively. I think it will continue tonight and lead to an offensive explosion. And also, too, the emotional toll UNC has to deal with cannot be overlooked. They got one of the biggest wins of the season, one of the biggest wins in program history, no hyperbole, on Saturday night in eliminating Coach K, eliminating their rival Duke from the Final Four as these teams met for the first time in NCAA tournament history. That win will never be overstated enough. That win will never not be talked about. So now, if you're UNC having to deal with that euphoria of beating your hated rival Duke, it is tough, human nature, to refocus, lock in 48 hours later to get ready for a game with even higher stakes, and that is the national title game. 
We saw last year between Gonzaga and UCLA. That great game went to overtime. Jalen Suggs hits the half-court buzzer beater to send Gonzaga to the national title game. That was an insane moment. The entire game was back and forth, super stressful. And what happened? 48 hours later, without even the pressure and intensity of it being a, a rivalry game with you know the future of a storied and, and legendary head coach on the line, you saw Gonzaga come out slow. They came out slow to the gate. Baylor punched him in the mouth. And it was really never a contest. Baylor cruised and was dominating the entire game. Was Gonzaga that bad? No. They're not that much worse than Baylor. But the thing was, the emotional letdown, I think, is natural in a game like this where you win such a euphoric game just 48 hours later. It's tough to lock in. It's tough to get refocused. That was what doomed Gonzaga last year. I think that's what's going to doom UNC this year. It is really tough to lock back in after, again, a win that means so much, that carries so much. And I just think it's human nature to try to refocus, and it's tough emotionally to get back and ready for a game with even higher stakes than the one you just played in that had so much riding on it 48 hours earlier. So I think those two reasons are the biggest reasons why Kansas is winning the national title tonight. Three-point shooting, the emotional toll, the emotional letdown that I think is bound to happen to Carolina later tonight that is going to allow the Jayhawks to play well enough to win and get Bill Self his second national title at Kansas, the first one for the Jayhawks since 2008. I quickly want to say one thing about Carolina. Part of the reason why the emotional toll I think is going to uh, force a letdown here is because Carolina, their win over Duke on Saturday, is even more important and even bigger in the history of Carolina basketball than if they win the national title tonight. Carolina fans, I could not be more jealous because you have what every fan, I think, desperately craves when rooting for their team when it comes to, you know, arguing with rival fans. You have eternal bragging rights. There is never a Duke fan, something that a Duke fan could say to you where you don't have the trump card, where you can't finish an argument with the upper hand. All you got to say is, Cameron Indoor Stadium, Coach K's final game, Final Four, Coach K's miraculous run, his, his fairy tale ending to winning a national title uh, in his last year. Both ended at the hands of Carolina. The two worst moments of Duke's season, two of the worst moments in Duke basketball history, came at the hands of Carolina within one month. You now have bragging rights for the rest of history in a rivalry that is one of the most hotly contested and furious rivalries in all of sports. I couldn't be more jealous. That is what every fan dreams of. The ultimate dunk on the other fan base. Duke fans want to chirp even if they win 20 in a row over Carolina. All you always got to say is, hey, look, Coach K was Duke. And guess what? At the hands of us, at the hands of Carolina, we ended Coach K's career and we ruined Coach K's final home game. Those two memories will never, ever be erased from Duke fans or from Carolina fans. So even if Carolina wins this game tonight, even if they win their seventh national championship of program history, I still think the game that is more important, that will have a, a bigger impact on the history of Carolina basketball, is beating Coach K. Is the Final Four game against Duke. That win, sending Coach K home, the coach that you've always hated, the rival that you couldn't stand, sending and ruining their last hurrah for someone who was the entirety of the Duke program, I think can't be measured. Can't be measured. 
So win or lose tonight, I don't think it matters. I think tonight is a footnote in Carolina's season because the pinnacle, the game that will be remembered the most, the game that will be talked about the most, is beating Duke in the Final Four. So it's crazy that a national title game will take a backseat to anything during a season and not be the biggest accomplishment to a season. But I think that's what's the case here. I think the national title game would still sit secondary in Carolina's season looking back at it if they win it tonight. And Duke uh, taking down Duke in the Final Four and ruining Coach K's perfect you know, fairy tale ending, I still think would take precedent and still be the thing most talked about and most remembered of this Carolina season. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show. Really do appreciate everyone who tuned in for this Monday morning edition. Really excited to have you back. So excited to, uh, to look at and, and conclude the college basketball season later tonight. Very excited to see how I mean, Kansas is going to win. Selfishly, can't, brand, uh, can't lie here. Also, if Kansas is winning at all, and I would win my bracket if Kansas wins. So there is a little self-motivation in there uh, to root for Kansas, but I do think that they are going to pull it out in the end uh, using my objectivity, of course, which you always do. But super excited also for Thursday's show. Opening day is on Thursday. Baseball is back. We'll give you my World Series picks. We'll, we'll talk about some division winners to get you ready for the baseball season to start up as well. So a very busy and exciting week. So enjoy the game tonight. Get ready for baseball as it returns to uh, your television starting on Thursday. Great week to be back with you here. So between now and Thursday, we'll be back on Thursday at 9 a.m. as always. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you on Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.